to Young Discourse, a podcast for kids and adults too, by kids. Three young siblings talk about anything interesting under the sun. Be amused. Do you think it would be cooler to see the world if you're incredibly small or if you're super gigantic? Informed. Dust is actually very colorful. It is made up of things like skin cells, pollen, minerals, animal dander, stuff like that. And feel free to cringe. Out of the two octopi that it took to make those 56,000 eggs, the mother and the father, only two come out. This is Young Discourse, happening right now. Hi everyone, welcome back to Young Discourse. I'm Isaiah. I'm Ben. I'm Alina. And today is another one of our Dial episodes, which is the day in a life. So our guest is a member of the California State Bar. He received bachelor's association from Brown University. He's currently the executive director of a nonprofit called Brightline Defense Project in San Francisco. He's also on the boards of Asian Pacific Environmental Network and Mission Housing Development Corporation. Welcome, Eddie Han. Oh, Eddie Han, sorry about that. No, no worries. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So, Eddie, what do you, uh, what do, you do first of all, I guess? Uh, so my uh, day to job is actually as uh, the executive director of a nonprofit. We do environmental justice work. That's our focus. And it can range from programmatic work, meaning air quality monitoring, job training, and usually it's for low-income communities, communities that are disproportionately impacted by bad air pollution, for instance. And for us, we really want to prioritize their needs through that programmatic work, as well as pursue policy work, which is around uh, everything from uh, making sure solar is prioritized for low-income households to electric vehicles uh, can be acquired by low-income families as well. Okay. So if you run a nonprofit organization and basically all the stuff you do is nonprofit, then how are you supposed to get money to like, um, I guess, pretty much live, like get your food, <laughs> um, I don't know, fund your projects, pretty much just how do you get money? Uh, so our nonprofit work is generally at cost, meaning that we do have to fundraise uh, around, for instance, uh, making rent on office space or paying yeah. the salaries of employees of the nonprofit who treat this as a full-time job. Uh, so we do have volunteers who help out our nonprofit, but at the end of the day, there is so much work to be done that uh, you actually have employees coming here working 40-hour work weeks, and I myself work a lot more than that. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. about um, having a passion for what you do as well. Mm. So what does your typical workday look like? Oh, um, I can describe it pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. Okay. Uh, Pre-pandemic, it was always a blend of being in this office, trying to make sure that staff's projects were running okay, and also convening community meetings at our office as well. During the pandemic, it's been more complicated. So even... Uh, pre-pandemic, I would bounce between different communities that existed in the Bay Area that have different needs. And so it'd be taking a lot of meetings in person. Um, during the pandemic, um, in the first few months, a lot of those meetings were just you know, done by phone, by email, and through Zoom. 
but uh, there's also a lot of in-person work that still happens. So for instance, you'll see uh, before you this map of San Francisco with all these red dots. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're like, what are those red dots? Those actually represent food deliveries we made during the pandemic to different apartment buildings, different low-income senior households. So we made over 1,400 meal deliveries across the city. And so that's just- That's a lot, yeah. Gives you a sense of scale and uh, geographic scope to the type of work we do. Now, food delivery Mm -hmm. is a very small portion of our work. It was just something that was important because uh, people were very focused on staying at home in the early days. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, a lot of our work is also trying to fill, you know, what the need is in the moment. Mm -hmm. So we tried to respond to it as best as we could. That's That's awesome. I'm just curious, like, where do you get, like, the food? Do you, like, partner partner with, like, an organization or to distribute or what is yeah, that? Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up because uh, there were, these weren't, you know, cooked by myself, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> distributed, uh, you know, just by one person across the city. And 1,400 is actually a, a smaller number of a much larger number. So tens of thousands mm-hmm. of meals yeah. were distributed over the course of months. So the meals, we, there were a number of other nonprofits that had kitchens mm-hmm. available and had staffing available to help provide, uh, create those meals. Uh, the two nonprofits that Brightline worked with, my nonprofit, were uh, Chinatown Community Development Center, mm-hmm. CCDC as they're known, in San Francisco. And they had several kitchens in Chinatown mm-hmm. that helped produce these meals. And some of them were even small businesses, small restaurants, that, yeah. because they couldn't host, uh, you know, in, in rest- inside the restaurant you know, day-to-day patrons, what they ended up doing was creating meals for people outside, you know, to deliver to their homes. So there's mm-hmm. uh, Chinatown Community Development Center, and then there was also Self-Help for the Elderly, which also had a couple key kitchens that helped create all of these meals to deliver to senior homes throughout the city. So you said that you delivered 14,000 meals, right? Uh, 1,400, yeah. Oh, yeah, 1,400. So <laughs> that's still a lot of meals. And to fund that, how are you supposed to get the money? Because I'm I'm quite sure that to get the money for that much, it would be very hard to get all that just through fundraising. Well, the trickier part of that for Brightline was that meal delivery was actually volunteer work by Brightline. Hmm. So it was not directly funded. In fact, I used my own personal car to deliver all those meals. Oh. Uh, so it was me running around a lot in a car during the pandemic. And I even described this in a comic too, uh, where um, a lot of the natural day-to-day stuff one had gotten used to before the pandemic, that all went out the window. And so uh, just even understanding if, for instance, some other catastrophe happens, uh, being able to respond to it in the moment will Mm -hmm. always be important to me. So- as a lawyer, or you, you are a lawyer, right? Yes. And you worked uh, and you studied law. Mm-hmm. How do you think that your education and background uh, and your career like helped you uh, in your current position at Brightline? Yeah. Uh, so what I do is ultimately a blend as uh, the head of a nonprofit that works on all these different issues. Um, I do fundraising, for instance. I manage staff. I also do direct organizing as well, such as things like, you know, delivering meals. Um, I I think the legal skill sets are important for the more policy-oriented work I described. So uh, I'll give you an example, and it's very in the weeds. But uh, 
we work on something called local hiring, uh, which is about trying to guarantee jobs for local underemployed, unemployed residents. Uh, particularly in construction jobs is one area, industry that we focused on a lot because people who do not go on to college, say, immediately will want some other kind of career potentially or good paying job to hopefully hold down uh, their family. Uh, so a lot of Brightline's work has been thinking through not just the job training part, like the direct uh, teaching of skill sets on how to uh, thrive in construction, but also making sure when they're trained that they have a job at the end of that training pathway. Mm -hmm. So as a lawyer, part of what we do is we figure out how to structure laws and community benefits agreements to make sure that there are jobs available on any particular work site. And that can require understanding, for instance, of federal constitutional law. So you'll have to go break down the legal analysis of what that means. It also requires an understanding uh, more subtly of policy so how does the construction industry work? How do developers interact with, say, contractors, uh, actual construction companies, labor unions, um, and ultimately the communities that are impacted by these developments? So it requires, uh, you know, I described a blend of skill sets earlier to even run a nonprofit, but even to do the legal work well, you need an understanding of policy, law, and politics. Hmm. So do you feel satisfied with the job you have now? Like, are you happy with it? I would say yes overall. It's yeah. very, very hard work. I, mm. I don't want to sugarcoat it either. Uh, but I've mm. been in this work now for 12 years. I graduated 2009 from law school. Mm. And yeah. yeah, it gives me a lot of joy at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, the last, I, I mean, just to be blunt, the last year and a half during the pandemic has been some of the hardest uh uh, years that yeah. now um, have been uh, I've been at a nonprofit. Yeah, but. especially due to all of the restrictions and the amount of, I guess, change that brought to your work. Yeah, it's, yeah. You have to be um, good about responding to community needs, and also you have to be about keeping them safe too. So, mm. a lot in the early days was just making sure things were sanitized, that you're wearing your mask appropriately mm. when approaching communities. I think there's always a lot of uh, good intent in trying to help people, but yeah. you also want to think through every detail to make sure that intent is yeah. fulfilled. So so you've told us most of the good things about your work. What do you think are some of the things that make you, I don't know, not like your work, like the, the parts of your job that, I don't know, make it worse? I think uh, the toughest thing to... Uh, grapple with with the work is that the need uh, is often endless. It's yeah. very, very hard to fulfill everybody's need uh, mm. in this work and that yeah. the resources we have are very limited too. It's mm. we, we only have so much time in the day and I only have so many staff members to mm. try to yeah. go address any issue. Um, so that that's an ongoing, I would say, frustration. I think it's it's just a mm -hmm. more fundamental question: Is it enough? Um, is it enough to do this work on its own merits? And that's something I think about a lot. Yeah. So, do you have any advice for someone who might want to pursue the same job that you have? I think being patient is really important. That. Mm -hmm. um, you have to meet communities where they're at at the end of the day. If you yeah. have this very specific view of the community that you're trying to impose upon them, that usually leads to some trouble uh, because mm. 
even our fundamental, you know, uh, view of the work uh, is in the tagline that we carry, we uh, have for the organization. You'll see it over there on the banner. It says empowering communities, sustainable environments. Mm -hmm. So the hope is when I just described earlier, like the meal delivery, the meal delivery itself is not about saving anybody. It's not about, you know, trying to make sure, because if you, you know, you deliver a meal and it's only one meal potentially a day uh, and it's not going to feed them for the rest of their lives, right? Mm. But the hope is, is that, you know, you have them aware of a process that exists. And again, I was just one volunteer of hundreds uh, in that delivery network. Yeah. But then you also want to create sustainable environments too. So hopefully making sure that uh, they're empowered with the knowledge and that the deliveries can go on in a more long-term way or that food security itself, uh, and food insecurity is sometimes a term that's thrown around to talk about how you know, a lot of low-income households don't have access, steady access to food. Hmm. So how to address that is something we think about a lot in the work too. Yeah. What made you want to name your company Brightline? Oh, so I didn't come up with the name myself. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but I, I came on to it fairly early. So mm-hmm. we were established in 2005. Uh, yeah. And then we're officially a 501c3, which is the tax mm-hmm. designation for a nonprofit in 2006. Uh, I came on when I graduated from law school in 2009. So mm-hmm. it's about three years later. Um, yeah. And we had started out as a very, you know, most people, when they think of the lawyer, they have a very traditional idea of a lawyer probably from movies it's like yeah. you see the yeah. suit <laughs> yeah, going right. to a courthouse yeah. with a briefcase yeah. and the objection client. yeah objection <laughs> <laughs> just shout, slamming the table in a dramatic yeah. fashion you know <laughs> unacceptable your honor uh but for us like we started out as a direct legal aid organization but then very mm. quickly tra- you know transitioned into this blend of work which is more around community organizing um, trying to push forward, for instance, legislation potentially or regulatory policy, larger mm-hmm. policy frameworks that can help the communities that we care about. Uh, so there's a, a larger vision, hopefully, to what we do, and it's not just about the one-off moment uh, mm-hmm. in whatever it is. Did you always know you wanted to do this? Or like from, let's say you're my age, like what did you want to do at my age? Like just about to go to university. I had an, a vague idea that I wanted to go to law school and potentially become a lawyer. I wasn't uh, very aware of what the field entailed. So there is um, a very big sector in just doing uh, private legal practice. I'll just term it that way. But um, there, there is a you know because you incur so much debt through law school. I think a natural path, and it's not a bad path. I want to emphasize that too. But a natural path is to go on to a law firm and work a number of years there uh, and earn like you know skill sets like whether it's litigation related or transaction related so and then you learn a particular field of law as well so law legal practice is extremely specialized too so mm-hmm. uh, the legal legal work that brightline does tends to be environmental regulatory law it's a very specific agency that we usually interact with and a very specific set of issues that we deal with. So for us at the end of the day, uh, we just want to make sure that um, uh, I think over the long term, I guess, that our employees are fulfilled in doing what they do. And for me early on too, I think this is more or less what I wanted to do. Uh, Actually, even when I thought of law school being an occupation. So that's why I've been with this nonprofit as long as I have. 
<laughs> were you ever influenced as a child to become a lawyer or was it um or were you ever uh i don't know how to i liked watching um legal uh movies like movies oh. about the practice of law so again yeah. it's it's heavily dramatized you get to see the <laughs> moments in the courtroom where a witness breaks down yeah. or a jury seems like they're going a certain way yeah. and then they flip based on how persuasive you are mm -hmm. in the moment and the camera you know <laughs> you can almost see like the light shine down <laughs> yeah. and the protagonist yeah. whoever it is is like you know pumping their fist into the air as they make yes, the key <laughs> I, I think life generally is rarely like the movies. So there's mm. that. So I was inspired very early on, I would mm. say, by popular mm. culture. And yeah. it's probably why I'm still so interested in it now and doing art mm. projects myself, too. So when you were applying to Brown University or uh, when you wanted to go to Brown University, like what did you do to make sure, you know, you stood out from other applicants and you got accepted? I did a wide variety of extracurriculars prior uh, to college. And I even did them in college just to explore different um, uh, career, potential careers I could imagine myself in. But um, before uh, college, I did a high school debate, for instance, and I uh, got to study through, uh, the high school debate I did was very, um, wonkish and took a lot of work it, it was called <laughs> policy debate uh and it meant you had to research an annual topic and you know read through thousands of pages of material on any particular um issue that you thought could be related to that topic so that was um a lot of fun at the time to do and it it really helped expand even my curiosity about policy work and legal work to begin with um, I did other stuff. I did art. I painted in high school, even though, to be honest, I wasn't a very good painter or an artist. I, I would, you know, consider myself uh, much um, better having self-taught myself over the last now mm. eight, nine years more seriously. But back in high school, it was just really dabbling. I did violin and piano, too, for eight, nine years each, but I was terrible at both <laughs> instruments. Um, I, I think there was a point where I became okay at it in maybe sixth grade, uh, seventh grade, but afterwards it was all downhill from there. So it was like <laughs> I plateaued and then, yeah, just steady decline. Cause I, to be honest, um, I, there, there's natural talent that exists for certain things in life. And you probably know that by now, but for me, I just, uh, realized I'd hit whatever small amount of you know, uh, skill mm. that I had for playing each instrument, and I wasn't going to get any better. I didn't yeah, have. You like can a, only ever get so far, um, without having actual interest in that topic or in that instrument in that sport. Yeah. yeah. Have you heard about mm -hmm. the ten thousand hour rule by chance? It's like a very yeah. My dad was talking yeah. about that. Yeah, mm -hmm. he said Popular. that. You know, it takes at least ten thousand hours to get like become a real master of the thing that you mm -hmm. want to get good at yeah it's come mm -hmm. out of uh sociology as like um uh, just understanding the amount of work ethic it takes but there's also an understanding too that you need some baseline talent to even bring it further and it's a uh, difference between being good in a lot of situations versus being great at something and that the ten thousand hour rule is kind of like a 
back of the napkin math mm, in terms yeah. of like how much work mm-hmm. you need to put into something mm-hmm. to become great at it. Um, did you ever find yourself using skills that you've learned from those extracurricular activities in your later life? Yes. So art was definitely one of them um, in the sense that, uh, as I said before, I didn't consider myself a very good artist in high school, but I did gain a curiosity, I think, about all types of creative storytelling. So I really liked um, looking at movies, for instance, in just a totally different way based on how much effort it would take to draw something on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And even movies, the way if you think about the way they're framed, right, it's like essentially a long rectangle. It's mm-hmm. a very different kind of formatting for creative storytelling that I really enjoyed uh, and wanted to continue doing. And for me, uh, that was just something I carried on and continued developing. So I dabbled, for instance, uh, in film study and trying to understand how to create short films too with the team. And Mm. uh, I can't take much credit for the short films themselves, but at least it was interesting to see that film production process. And then I also got to uh, do my own comics over time as well. So I started to build that out more and more and understand it as a creative medium, how you could push a story along over the course of whether it's like a comic strip, you know, just three panels versus pages of material. Yeah. Can you tell us more about your comics? Like what was your inspiration and uh, what they're about? The earlier comics I used to do were around uh, fictional characters, but they were inspired by personal family stories. So they Mm. weren't autobiographical in the sense that they weren't directly about me, but um, they were about, for instance, uh, things that were really important uh, in my family's history. I'll I'll give you an example. There was a, a... zine booklet I did called Sidewalk Empire. And Irene remembers this as well. I actually remember reading those. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That was really good. (laughs) This is like a long time ago now, it feels like. But it was essentially like a talking turtle character, super angry and sarcastic, but always wanted to build a business empire across San Francisco through a coffee cart. That was the basic premise. Mm. And it was uh, largely inspired by my own grandfather who was also, from all accounts, a very bright person, very ambitious about building his own type of empire. Mm. Never quite put it together, though. He had a, um, I mean, he was wealthy in the sense that he had family uh, that at the end of the day uh, tried to understand what he did and um, appreciated him for his intelligence. But he had other shortcomings, I think, that made his business not successful. And uh, for me, the Turtle comics were also about that trajectory in which Mm. you can try, 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 but sometimes life doesn't work out in the way you want it to, too. Yeah. So I've actually seen a lot of other comics that have a similar art style. So um, I wanted to ask, like, why did you choose that particular art style and what do you like about it? The art styles evolved over time based on... uh, to be honest, like how much better I can draw a human being to. <laughs> so uh, it used to be very simple, like, you know, uh, what you would think of as like just a circle with two dots and a, mm. you know, um, a you <laughs> yeah. trying to represent a person. And then I started to define like cheekbones and e- mm. understand, oh, the ears are placed a certain way. Hair mm. looks a certain mm. way too on a person. 
I think I studied a lot of comics to begin with to develop mm. our art style. Uh, and it's probably, uh, to put a finger on the style, a blend between Eastern comics and uh, Western comics and more mm. specifically Japanese manga and more the kind of Marvel DC art style that most mm. people are familiar yeah. with. Obviously, my characters are not like muscular mm. superheroes or anything like yeah. that. But um, there is a way they frame a scene, uh, which is also, mm. again, influenced by movies uh, and mm. other styles of uh, storytelling, whether it's like TV or whatever it is that you even see on uh, social media nowadays is a different style of visual storytelling. But um, I think it's just come over a very long period of time of just blending different art styles together. Mm, yeah. How do you find like the time to balance um, your art and your work? Like I, for me personally, I think that I always wanted to, I've always played with the idea of becoming like an author or like a, a music artist or something. But I, um, I thought that like just getting like a traditional line of work and then kind of like doing stuff, art, artsy stuff on the side would be better. Like how do you find the balance between those? I would say even now, Isaiah, you should totally explore writing or doing different aspects. And college, I think, for that reason, is really great to do because it does give you that space to not only um, explore different extracurriculars and different interests, but also other people who might have different interests as well and like build relationships with them. And hopefully over time, too, you can see their own educational pathways and internship experiences and careers that they're having so that it can help inform your own choices and how you're going to create a work-life balance. For me personally, I, I do work a lot. I uh, uh, This is my full-time job, meaning Brightline. Uh, the nonprofit work I do is more than just 40 hours a week. Uh, mm. It's definitely at times uh, very intense. I think the one of the reasons why I've kept at art over the years is that it, it fills a different um, side of my brain. It's not very mechanical in the sense that um, I'm not like trying to figure out how to do a hundred phone calls over like this call list, or I'm not trying to do, you know, a filing in a certain regulatory setting and, you know, fit the exact formatting guidelines that the <laughs> Uh, rules of practice, uh, practice and procedures I've prescribed. Uh, so the art, in a way, is a way, if I do the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, the nonprofit legal work, then I go home, I can reset my brain just doing the art by itself. It's a different type of creative uh, problem solving that I really do enjoy, and that's why I've mm. kept on doing it. So is the art... Um, what you normally do during your free time or do you do something else? It is. Um, one of the things I used to do, uh, and maybe you'd appreciate this, Ben, is like watch YouTube <laughs> videos yeah. of uh, video game walkthroughs. Mm. And, you know, you can only uh, draw for so many hours before your hand starts to um, cramp up. In mm. other words, you're going to get muscle pains if you hold yeah. your hand in any particular way. For a very long period of time so i would end up uh drawing for maybe like half an hour to an hour and then just take mm -hmm. a break and think about the process as i watch a youtube you know video of someone either it could be like just a comedy youtube video mm -hmm. too but it yeah. could be also just a video game being played and that way it's not as active for instance as playing the video game itself but it's also another way of just 
kind of keep your brain fresh as you do it too. Because yeah. it's good to always have a break every once in a while. Yeah, moment. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody can just do any particular task for yeah. hours on end. It's probably not healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even with video games, like you're going to get bored eventually. Yeah, it's if you stimulate your brain in that particular way, it can be um, too much too. So, I agree. So, uh, you're a member of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. Can you describe what you do there? Yeah, so that's as a board member of a nonprofit. And just to describe nonprofits a little better, there is an uh, usually a structure to nonprofits. So there are different types of staff. So you can have staff doing, say, program coordination or uh, policy associate work. And then you have uh, an executive director who's usually the leader of the nonprofit. And above the nonprofit, there's usually a board of directors is what they're usually referred to, or just simply a board member. So essentially what it is, is it's a a group of people, um, typically five to maybe even as depending how large the organization is it could be maybe as many as 20 even though that seems to be a lot for a nonprofit. but essentially what they are is they are the governing board of the organization so they oversee its finances make sure that things are being run according to you know basic uh, legal practices they are ultimately the fiduciaries meaning the uh, people responsible in case things go really badly at a nonprofit. <laughs> but uh, APEN, uh, the particular organization that I sit on the board of, uh, is a really uh, great nonprofit. It does a lot of work in the organizing space around environmental issues and specifically for Asian Americans mm. throughout the Bay Area. So they have offices in Oakland. Uh, they have another office in Richmond, the city of Richmond. and. Yeah, I think they have uh, intentions to also expand across the state of California as well. So what are some of the latest projects that you've worked on? Oh, um, I am doing this podcast with you all, which is a lot of fun. (laughs) But um, I am thinking through where to take the comics next. So currently I am publishing them a lot on Instagram and have been... uh, creating these essentially short stories uh, and even trying to keep to a schedule of posting uh, one post a week has been a lot of work. Um, <laughs> yeah. Each page is probably somewhere between oh, 15 to maybe even as many as like 25, 30 hours worth of work. Yeah, because oh. there's a lot of detail I can see in the yeah. in the stuff. Yeah. So, so there's research, you know, you have to do and even mm. building up the page, whether it's say photographic research to even be able mm. to draw a single building or yeah, you know, yeah. human being. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, the drawing itself. And then there's the writing too that has to come along with it. So the writing, rewriting mm. Mm. work. Yeah. But um other projects I'm working on. More recently, maybe I'll talk about the air quality monitoring that we're doing. So the, there are these sensors that we've mm. put up all over the South of Market Tenderloin area. And we've put them near uh, mm. street corners where hopefully they'll- uh, Yeah, the Tenderloin <laughs> track pollution uh, in the area. So as mm. yeah. you know, people use their cars again, you know, and they're not staying at home, we'll be able to see mm. the impacts of uh, traffic going by yeah. and how much it, um, just even being able to measure the quality of the air is really important. Mm. 
And uh, you were were you around during the wildfires the last mm, yeah. year too? So you probably remember how severe that was too. Yeah. And that these are particularly important for people who can't fo- afford an air quality sensor at the end of the day. That this data then goes up on the internet. We have it on a map where uh, then they can uh, go check the map and see what the air quality is like if a sensor is near them. And then we've put up 500 of these posters uh, in the two neighborhoods, the South of Market and Tenderloin mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah, usually you don't really think about stuff like this, like gathering data about air quality and putting up sensors. Like you usually wouldn't see, you think about the work that goes behind all of that data. Yeah. And the other challenge, too, with environmental issues more generally is it's hard to care about the environment. I think this has been historically shown over and over again that people don't really panic about the environment until it's a catastrophe. Mm. That once they realize that the air is unbreathable, then they're like, what what has caused the air to be unbreathable to begin with? And then they start freaking out. So um, Mm. part of it is trying to be preventative and, you know, um, making sure things like this are tracked before they actually happen to. Can I ask questions about you three? Because it's been so long. So yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, for uh, listeners on your podcast, like I have known Irene, of course, your mother, uh, now, goodness, uh, 15 years now (laughs) since I first moved out to the Bay Area. And uh, of course, Isaiah was a very young child. And (laughs) I still, I was looking at a photo of me carrying you the other day too, Mm. so that you're taller than I am is really uh, awesome. (laughs) It's really funny to me. (laughs) But yeah, I listened to the episode about Germany and I'm just curious, like, would you at the end of the day want to be in Germany still versus Mm. the US? Like, how do you feel about that? That's too hard, honestly. I think that if I think that maybe earlier in the year, I would have said yes because I recently just met up with one of my old friends here, and I feel like life would be I don't know, it would be a lot more bland. So I guess I'll just I'd say go back to Germany, but now I feel like I've done a lot of things here and. If I stay in Germany, a lot of this wouldn't have happened. And I feel like, I don't know, but I do miss Germany a lot. And yeah. In my opinion, like just living in Germany, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. Like Bay Area, it's like, like the, I guess something that I like that really subconsciously affected me was kind of just the landscape of the, the whole place I'm living in because yeah. in Germany it's a lot of forests and yeah. greenery yeah. and I the don't know the air is, is so fresh clean. and like <laughs> it just feels nice to breathe yeah and it, I guess there's, there's a lot of cool people in Germany too you can meet yeah. like so many cool people and it's a totally different lifestyle so in my opinion I actually kind of like living in Germany more yeah but the thing that makes me want to choose California is just growing up here and all of my friends and family and mm. just all of that you know it's something that I've always missed in Germany so I have to choose mm. California in my opinion yeah and we also have our dog here so yeah our dog was true. a huge part of that yeah um I would agree with Ben I think earlier in the year I was really um I was very sad leaving Germany yeah because I had 
Mm-hmm. I kind of developed into my teenage years while I was in Germany. So I kind of got really used to the lifestyle there and the culture and the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really big shock, especially after COVID. Um, it was kind of sad having my last few months in Germany being in lockdown at home, yeah. you know, on video calls every day. <laughs> so I think earlier yeah. in the year, I would have really wanted to move back. Mm. But now I'm kind of getting used to life here. And also, it's really convenient to be able to speak English mm. to people. Yeah. And yeah. I think that the thing that I miss the most from Germany is there are these two kids um they are neighbors and they're like right next to us and literally like what what they would do is just like on the weekends at 8 a.m they'll be knocking on the door yeah peer- yeah peering through the windows like oh ben ben oh you want to play and it's like it did it did get annoying and tiring sometimes but i feel like i still had a lot of fun and they had a trampoline there too so yeah i've wondered that too like alina do you miss your friends yeah. back in germany as well um yeah definitely mm-hmm. i think i don't know if i should well it's okay i'll talk about it um i've grown really distant over the past few months with my friends in germany and we've kind of lost touch a little bit mm-hmm. so i think that's why i'm kind of in in between germany and california yeah mm-hmm. And is it the same for you, Isaiah, as well? Have you been able to keep in touch through, say, social media, for instance, or email or more old-fashioned letters? <laughs> yeah, we just uh, talk through, like, text messages. Um, like, mm-hmm. uh, there's a uh, app called Discord. Yeah. We just kind of talk every day. It's, ac- it's actually kind of nice because, um, yeah. you know, you don't have to email them or mm. uh, get their number or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I've only been keeping in touch with a couple of people. Not my not my entire friend group, so, mm. yeah. Mm. The only problem with Discord is that, like, since my friends live in Germany, it takes them, like, three hours to reply. <laughs> uh, different time zone. Different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, another thing about Germany is that, um, you know, it's kind of, like, not really in the center. Of, it's kind of, like, in the center of uh, Western Europe. So you can just drive to different countries and experience, like, totally different, like, travel experiences and food and everything. So, yeah, you can't really get that because, you know, you drive 10 hours in Germany you're in a totally different country, but 10 yeah. hours here is like just another state. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's Nevada. It's or it Nevada. can just be up and down California. Yeah, like <laughs> that too, yeah. It's not too different, so. Well, do you ever imagine yourself going to school, Isaiah, the, you know, college in particular, you know, overseas, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I don't really know so far, you know, it's like, I, I want, I want to like explore the idea of going to an international college or whatever, but at the same time, it's also nice staying here in California. So, I don't know yet. <laughs> Good to be close to family too. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Your siblings would miss you, and parents <laughs> would miss you too. Can I ask, like, how long were you in San Francisco for? Goodness, fourteen years, and yeah, it's been that long. Wow. Uh, so when mm-hmm. I first moved out to the Bay Area, when I was uh, working as an after-school programmer in Oakland Chinatown, I moved about uh, over six times in nine months. <laughs> It was just bouncing all over the, mostly the East Bay, but I did live in uh, San Francisco for, oh, maybe like two months of that nine-month period. 
uh, mm. particularly in the Richmond district. And then mm. I went to law school starting in 2006 at Hastings in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, my first neighborhood I ever lived in was the Tenderloin mm. and then lived in Hayes Valley, another neighborhood for a bit, mm. and then Glen Park, uh, and then back to the Richmond district mm. where I live So, right yeah. So what are you like, your experiences with um, coworkers in in your job, maybe your relationships with them, and I guess um, what's like to be, uh, what's like to work with them. I would say generally good. I I do enjoy working uh, with the employees that are part of the Bright Line um, <clears throat> nonprofit network. Is maybe what I'll yeah. describe it as. Brightline does a lot of collaborative programming. Uh, with other uh, service providers. So these are nonprofits that specialize in education, Mm. um, job training, building affordable housing. uh, And we really enjoy the different perspectives that they represent across San Francisco, whether it's San Francisco Chinatown to the Mission District to Bayview Hunters Point. Um, This city is uh, relatively small. It's only seven by seven miles. Uh, so 49 square miles. But there's a lot of density in the city and that there's a lot of different cultures to interact with. Yeah. One thing I've heard about nonprofits is that, like, you know, since it's a lot of people passionate about their work and working hard, it's like more of a family community. Is that true? I think so. It's different in the sense that it's not about maximizing profit, or it shouldn't be at least. It, every nonprofit is legally required to have a mission to uh, really, you know, a charitable purpose is the intent of having a nonprofit. So as a result, usually people are there for the mission and they want to serve the mission. And for Brightline, it's no different. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I think most people who have come through our nonprofit have been very enthusiastic at the end of the day. So you said that you work 40 plus hours a week, is that right? Yes. Do you ever find yourself burnt out or feeling very exhausted? Oh, sure. I mean, that, I think that's naturally part of the work, too. I do have a lot of energy, uh, and I am very structured and focused on how I approach projects. But again, I, I think that's why art has been so important to my life, generally, is that to just be able to have something different to... Uh, besides the functions of this nonprofit have been really important. That said, like, one of the things I've been thinking through, too, is, uh, you know, again, like the impact and the the earlier question I asked was, is it enough? And so Mm. that is something to continue thinking about and just weighing as I uh, hopefully, if I continue doing this work, that I'll continue to enjoy doing it not just because I feel like I have to or mm-hmm. somehow it's yeah. paying the bills. There are, there are much, much easier ways to pay the bills than <laughs> nonprofit work, let me assure you that. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I think it's, it's about what you enjoy in life too. And mm-hmm. that's maybe a, a final takeaway I'd leave you with is that try to find something you really enjoy doing and then it won't feel like work as much. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess that will conclude the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Eddie, for coming on and sharing about your experiences. You can email us at youngdiscourse at gmail.com. And, and also make sure to check out Eddie's Instagram where he posts his comics. It's yeah. E-H-A Comics, I believe. Okay. Yeah, that it is. 
All right. So thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.